We're continuing together our study of chapter 30 that deals with the subject of the Lord's Supper in our confession of faith. And last week we looked at verses 7, pardon me, verses, huh, paragraphs 7 and 8, which deal with the reception of the Lord's Supper. And paragraph 7 deals with the worthy reception of the Lord's Supper. And paragraph 8 deals with the unworthy reception of the Lord's Supper. Now, last time we looked at paragraph 7, and we saw that a worthy reception of the Lord's Supper involves an outward physical partaking of the elements of the Lord's Supper. One must eat and one must drink. But there also must be an inward activity as well, where by faith we are meditating upon Christ, we are communing with Christ in our hearts, and we are seeing, um, as it were, with our eyes of faith, Jesus Christ and Him crucified uh, by means of the elements that represent uh, His sacrifice for us on the cross. And so um, Christ is spiritually present to us. We see him with the eyes of faith and we commune with him in our hearts, just like we commune with the bread and the wine with our bodies. And just as we take them into us, uh, so by faith and through prayer and communion with Christ, meditating on his word um, and speaking to him in our hearts, we, we receive him once again um, as, as our Lord and as our Savior. All right, well, that brings us then to paragraph 8, which is the subject of our study today. And this, of course, is the last paragraph in this chapter. And it deals with the unworthy reception of the Lord's Supper. Now, there's two classes of people who are capable of unworthy reception of the Lord's Supper. The first class of people are the ignorant and the ungodly, namely those who are unsaved, okay? So the unsaved are unworthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, they're not fit to partake of it. And the saved also may partake in an unworthy fashion. And so uh, paragraph 7 was talking about the saved partaking in the ordinance in a proper way. The latter part of paragraph 8 talks about the saved partaking of the Lord's Supper in an ungodly way. So let's read the paragraph together and see uh, the distinction between these two groups of people, although both of them are partaking in an unworthy fashion. Notice the first class, paragraph 8, all ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ, so they are unworthy of the Lord's table and cannot, without great sin against him, while they remain such, that is, while they remain ignorant and ungodly, partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted thereunto. So it's very clear, unsaved persons, if they do partake in the Lord's Supper, they are committing sin by doing so. And we're going to talk about why. And uh, also, the church is not to be indifferent. The church is not to admit them to the Lord's Supper. Okay? That is conveyed to them that it's okay for them to partake of the elements. 
All right. Now notice the second class of people that are then taken up in the, in the middle of the paragraph. It says, yea, whosoever. And now the class is expanded to include even believers. Okay. It says, whosoever shall receive unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, eating and drinking judgment to themselves. So certainly the unsaved, when they partake, always partake unworthily. But the saved, when they partake, can either partake worthily, paragraph 7, or unworthily, the latter half of paragraph 8. And of course, we see that this is the warning that's issued to the church at Corinth. Um, professing believers in Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be looking at that as we go along. Uh, probably take us a um, couple weeks to get through this latter paragraph, but we're going to uh, plow ahead and see uh, how far uh, God gets us. So we want then to talk about the fact that only believers in Jesus Christ uh, are qualified or worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, it takes more than just being a believer to worthily partake. There also has to be a disposition and an attitude in that believer for that worthy partaking. But at the very least, you have to be a believer in Christ. And if you're not, there's no way you can ever be worthy as an unsaved person partaking of the Lord's Supper. And we're going to talk about why that is true. It's true for several reasons. And the first reason why the ungodly and the unsaved cannot worthily partake of the Lord's Supper is simply because of the clear biblical precedent in the Bible that when we look at every instance in which the Lord's Supper is being celebrated, it's always and only believers who are celebrating it. So let's turn in our Bibles to a couple of passages, Acts chapter 2, first of all. The book of Acts chapter 2, what we have here is the inauguration of the church. And uh, <clears throat> under its new covenant uh, administration. And um, Peter's preached his Pentecost Day sermon. He's uh, set forth the gospel. And um, he's exhorting people to become saved. And in Acts chapter uh, 2, in verse 41... Notice it says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. So the people who heard the gospel embraced the gospel. They were baptized. And the same day they were added unto them about 3,000 souls. So they were saved. They were baptized. They were brought into the membership of the church. Okay. And then what did they do? Verse 42. And they, that is those who gladly received the word and were baptized and were joined to the church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And so who was it that participated in the breaking of bread? It was believers who had been baptized and incorporated into the church. Those are the ones who partook of the breaking of the bread. Now let's turn to uh, Acts chapter 20. <clears throat> This is the second mention of the Lord's Supper in the book of Acts. <clears throat> in Acts chapter 20, in verse 7, 
It says, and on, the, and on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, etc. So who was it that was gathering to break bread? Answer, disciples. The disciples gathered together to break bread. And so who is a disciple? It is one who is a believer in Jesus Christ as a Savior from sin, and one who is a follower of Christ in his example and teaching as his Lord. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, one of the things that we are professing by that act of coming is that we are a disciple of Jesus Christ because only disciples are to partake. And so when you come, you're saying, I'm a disciple, I am a believer. And of course, if someone is not a believer and they're engaging in an act that says they are a believer, then really what they're perpetrating is a lie and a deception. Now, the third biblical precedent we want to look at is not only Acts 2 and Acts 20, but also uh, the gospel records. And in, in each case, only believers were present at the institution of the Lord's Supper. When Jesus Christ established the Lord's Supper, Judas Iscariot had already been dismissed. He was the one unbeliever in the group of 12 apostles. And he was dismissed to go out and, of course, betray Christ. And um, uh, thus demonstrating that the Lord's Supper was not to be shared with the unsaved person. And so... Remember we talked about the meaning of the word mass? It comes from the Latin word missa, which means to dismiss. And the reason why the Catholic church service is called the mass, it's a very old term. It comes from way back uh, in the first centuries of Christianity, um, is that um, the unbelievers were dismissed from the assembly before, I mean, they physically were told to leave the building before the Lord's Supper was served and, and participated in. And um, so, uh, anyway, that's one of the grounds upon which um, Rome, uh, in the early days of the persecution of the church, uttered her slanders about the fact that they were sacrificing children and eating them, because they were the, the Lord's Supper, no unbelievers were there. And um, so they came up with all kinds of fantastic ideas about what was going on in this secret ritual and used that to... Uh, blaspheme the Christians and try to make them look evil. Okay, so first, the first reason then why only believers are to partake is because of clear precedent. Acts 2, Acts 20, all the gospel accounts, only believers were present at the institution of the supper. And each time the supper was practiced, those who believed and were baptized, those who were disciples, those were the participants. That's the precedent. Second reason why... Only believers are to partake, and ignorant and ungodly persons should not, is not only because of clear precedent, but because of the declarations that we are making. Because of the declarations we're making. We have the example of Scripture, but then we also have the teaching of Scripture regarding what it is that we are doing. And in a previous study in this uh, chapter, we saw that when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are engaging in an act of what we call declarative symbolism. And we are declaring 
that we believe certain things and that we have experienced certain things by our participation in the Lord's Supper. And so just like when you engage in the Pledge of Allegiance and you put your hand over your heart and you say the words, um, uh, what you are doing is you're engaging in an act of declarative symbolism. You're declaring yourself to be a citizen of the United States by that act. Uh, no foreign alien who is a citizen of another nation would ever stand and, and put his hand on his heart and say the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, okay? Because he's not an American citizen. He's not loyal to this country. And therefore, for him to engage in that act would be a lie. He would be saying something in his symbolic declaration that wasn't true in reality. Okay? So when we engage in an act of symbolic declaration in celebrating the Lord's Supper, we need to be sure that what we're saying in symbol is true in reality. So what are we saying? Well, we're declaring by our participation that we believe in the incarnation of Christ. If this is flesh and this is blood, if they're representative of flesh and blood, what we're saying is that God became man and took upon himself flesh and blood. We believe in the incarnation of Christ. We also are saying we believe in the sinless purity of Christ, that he's a suitable uh, sacrifice because he's without spot and without blemish. Um, that's why he was called the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is because he was um, you know, without spot. Um, you're not redeemed with corruptible things, but with incorruptible uh, by the blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and spot. It says in First uh, Peter or Second Peter that, where that's at, one of the two. Um, I always get my Peters mixed up. Yes, First uh, Peter one eighteen. For as much as you know, you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. From your vain manner of life received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so we're saying not only something about the incarnation of Christ that we believe that, but we're also saying something about the purity of Christ, that he's without blemish, without spot, without sin. And that's why he's a suitable sacrifice. Of course, we're also saying we believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood provided a substitutionary satisfaction in our place to God for our sins. And then, of course, by participating, we're also saying we believe in the resurrection and the second coming of Christ. Because as often as we uh, drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, we do proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes. Jesus himself uh, gave us that anticipatory perspective with reference to the Lord's Supper when he says, I will not drink this fruit of the vine with you again until I drink it new with you in the kingdom. And so when Jesus finally comes back, that will be the end of the Lord's Supper as a memorial service and it will change into uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And uh, we will eat and drink with him then. So as we, as we partake in these elements, we're saying that we believe something. We're saying we believe in the incarnation of Christ, that he took to himself flesh and blood. We're saying we believe in the sinless purity of Christ, that he was the lamb without blemish and spot, and thus a suitable sacrifice. We're saying we believe in a substitutionary atonement by the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body. He provided uh, satisfaction for the wrath of God against our sins. And we're saying we believe he rose from the grave and that he's coming again uh, and that we eat with a forward-looking view and anticipation of that element. We're saying all that when we partake. Now, if you're an unbeliever, huh, 
You don't believe in the incarnation. You don't believe in the sinlessness of Christ. You don't believe in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And you sure don't believe in the resurrection of the second coming. What are you doing participating in a ceremony that declares all that stuff? But not only are we declaring by our participation that we believe certain things, we're also declaring by our participation we have experienced certain things. Because Christianity isn't just about a belief in a set of doctrines, though it is certainly that. Christianity is also about a transformative experience where we become born again. We become new creations. We become resurrected spiritually. And so what we are declaring is that we have a life-giving union with Jesus Christ. We've been saved from our sins by faith in Christ, and he has given us new life. He's given us eternal life. We're declaring our spiritual union with other believers, that by one spirit, we've all been baptized into one body, and we now have experienced that spiritual union and communion with our fellow believers. And we're declaring our love for Christ, our thankfulness to Christ, and our submission to Christ when we partake in these elements. Part of communion with Christ is expressing thanks. Part of that communion is expressing love. We love him because he first loved us. And what greater manifestation of love is there than his sacrifice on the cross? And we're also declaring our submission to him that he is our Lord. We are his what? Disciples, like we talked about earlier. Only disciples participate. So only Christians can say, I have a life-giving union with Christ. Only Christians can say, I have a spiritual union and communion with other Christians. And only Christians will express love and thankfulness and submission to Jesus Christ as a result of thinking about uh, what the communion service represents. So only Christians can say that they believe these things. Only Christians can say they've experienced these things honestly. And therefore, only Christians are to uh, participate. So that's the second reason why ignorant and ungodly persons are uh, unfit to participate in the Lord's Supper because they have no no communion with Christ. But there's a third reason, and that is because the activity we are engaging in. The third reason why unbelievers are unfit to participate in the Lord's Supper is because of the activity we're engaging in. Now, as we have said several times already, according to 1 Corinthians 10.16, the Lord's Supper is an activity of communion. The Lord's Supper is called communion in 1 Corinthians 10.16. And so it's a time in which we, in our hearts, commune with Jesus Christ regarding his saving work on our behalf and his operation within us. And an unbeliever, of course, has no communion with Christ. That's what it says, right? All ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ. So they're unworthy of the Lord's Supper. And so what the authors of our confession are saying is that if the Lord's Supper is communion with Christ and ungodly people don't have communion with Christ, therefore ungodly people are not to participate in the Lord's Supper. And so an unbeliever has no communion with Christ. He's he is estranged from him. He is shut off from him until he repents and until he 
believes. And so it's therefore impossible for him to engage in communion with Christ in a communion service because he has no communion with Christ. And if he just merely goes through the motions of eating the bread and drinking the wine um, without having this communion or this fellowship with Christ in his heart, then it's not only a dishonor to Christ, it's useless to him, and it's an effort to engage in something for which he's simply not capable. It's like me trying to fly off the roof of the building by flapping my arms. Without a set of wings, it isn't going to happen. And so someone trying to have communion with Christ without personal faith in Christ at a communion service just isn't going to happen. They don't have the spiritual wings to fly, if you will, uh, to Christ. All right. There's a fourth reason why unbelievers are not to participate in the Lord's Supper, and that is because of the meaning of the Supper itself. Now, what, what did Jesus say when he instituted the Lord's Supper? When he instituted the Lord's Supper, he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so the Lord's Supper is, among other things, it is Christ's pledge and promise that all the benefits and blessings of the new covenant will be accomplished in us and provided for us. Okay? So, um, when we partake in the Lord's Supper, Jesus is saying this supper is the token of the covenant and it's the declaration of what I'm going to do on your behalf in and through that covenant. And so we must have an interest in and a personal participation in the new covenant if the Lord's Supper is going to be a pledge and promise of that covenant to us. And so to participate in the sign and pledge of the covenant, you need to be a party to the transaction of that covenant. The new covenant, of course, is God's promise to save his people from their sins by the sacrifice of his son for those sins in order that they might have both the transformation of their nature, and the forgiveness of their sins. When you look at the statement of the New Covenant, let's just look at it for a moment. It's uh, recorded for us in uh, Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 8.8 8. And this is just a direct quote straight out of Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Okay. In uh, Hebrews 8, 8, it says, For finding fault with him, he saith. Now here's the quote. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord. Now he's quoting Jeremiah. Okay, so Christ hadn't come at Jeremiah's time, but now uh, he has. The days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Now that covenant was the old covenant made on Mount Sinai with Moses and the people there. So the new covenant isn't going to be like that covenant on Mount Sinai. It's going to be different. 
He says, verse 9, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because he continued not in my covenant, I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. Here it is. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. What's that? That's regeneration. Okay, transformation of the inner person. Okay. And then he says, and I will be to them a God, and they will be to me a people. Okay, there's the adoption. We become God's children. Verse 11, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord. You don't have to evangelize those that are in the new covenant. Why? Notice the next phrase. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Everyone in the new covenant community is saved. Now, in the Old Covenant community, the prophets were constantly evangelizing the children of Israel, saying, you need to circumcise your heart. But we don't need to say that to those who are in the New Covenant, because I already have one. Okay, so they're all saved. Verse 12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousnesses, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And that he saith, the new covenant, he has made the first old. So the new covenant is simply God's promise to save his people from their sins by the sacrifice of his sons for their sins so that they might have the transformation of their nature and the forgiveness of their sins. So all that's promised and that's all that Jesus accomplished uh, in the new covenant. And so what is the Lord's Supper? A declaration of. The Lord's Supper is a declaration and those who participate in it are saying that they have experienced all that the new covenant declares. Their hearts have been regenerated. God is now their father. Um, their sins and iniquities have been forgiven and they um, no longer need to be evangelized. And so the Lord's Supper then is for believers. It is for those who recognize themselves as sinners, who recognize themselves as guilty of having broken God's laws and who justly deserve God's wrath and punishment. It is for those who having recognized their sinful condition, they cry out to Jesus Christ for mercy and for forgiveness. They desire to repent of their sins to turn from their sins and believe in Jesus Christ for the cleansing from their sins. Jesus declared in Luke 19 and verse 10, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. And if you see yourself as lost and separated from God by your sin, and if you are looking to Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, then you are a Christian. And the Lord's table is for you. And if you are not seeing yourself as a sinner and Jesus Christ is your Savior from sin, then the Lord's Supper is not for you and you are not a Christian. That clock is not functioning right. We have two minutes left. Um, okay, I think we'll stop there. Um, 
Let's go back and reread our, our confession then in paragraph 8. It says, All ignorant and ungodly persons, as they are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ, so are they unworthy of the Lord's table and cannot, without great sin against Him, while they remain such, partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted thereunto. And so... Um, if unsaved people do partake of the Lord's Supper, they are declaring a lie at every point. They're declaring a lie about who they are. They're declaring a lie about what they believe. And they're declaring a lie about their participation in the new covenant. And they are engaging in an act for which they have no qualifications and no call to engage. Now, Notice it specifically says that they're committing a great sin against him because they're really doing two things. Um, they're breaking the third commandment, which is they're taking the Lord's name in vain. They're saying by their participation that they are a believer in God when they're not. And they're, and they're using God's name uh, to and taking God's name upon themselves when they have no right to that name. Okay using God's name in an unworthy and inappropriate fashion. And then secondly, they're breaking um, the ninth commandment, which is they're bearing false witness. Okay, They're saying a lie that they're a Christian when they're not a Christian. And those are the two great sins that are associated with the unsaved taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, they're taking the Lord's name in vain, and they are bearing false witness. Now... <clears throat> It says here specifically that such people are not to be admitted. And the church has a duty to admit people to the Lord's Supper and to bar people from the Lord's Supper. Now, the church is incapable of seeing into the heart. And so what the church must do is make it very clear that if you are unsaved and you're not a believer in Christ, you must not partake. And if you do, you will bring the judgment of God upon yourself. On the other hand, if you are a Christian and you are trusting in Jesus, then you must partake because this is an obligation that Christ has laid upon all of his people. He says, do this in remembrance of me. But the operative command is do it. The reason is for remembrance. But we may not as believers, absent ourselves from the Lord's Supper any more than we would absent ourselves from communion, I mean, pardon me, from baptism or from Bible reading or from worship. Um, it's, it's a duty that's laid upon us. So the church must then um, make it very clear to unbelievers that they are not admitted to the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is not an evangelistic ordinance whereby people are brought to Christ it's a declarative ordinance in which people who are already in Christ are declaring that fact by their actions. All right. Are there any questions? Okay. Well, next time we're going to uh, talk about um, the unworthy participation on the part of believers. And, and that's the second part of the paragraph. It says, whosoever shall receive unworthily or guilty the body and blood of the Lord. So it's possible for even a believer to receive unworthily if he has wrong attitudes and wrong behaviors at the Lord's Supper. And we're going to talk about that next time. All right, let's pray together. 
Father, thank you so much for your kindness in giving us this wonderful ordinance. And Lord, we pray that um, those uh, who attend our services who are unsaved would abstain. And Father, may they heed the warning so that they would not uh, eat and drink judgment to themselves. Father, we pray that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, that you might help us to um, really enter into communion with Christ as we hear of his glorious work and as we partake of the symbols of his body and blood. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.